Okay, I'm looking forward to this one. It's the, the voice of football himself, Mr. Clive Tilsley. How are you, Clive? I'm as good as I can be at the moment, but then you haven't asked me a difficult question yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's yet to come. Don't worry. Don't worry. No, we'll, we'll go easy on you, I'm sure. Um, for, first thing, though, I want to say is just a massive thank you. Firstly, for speaking to us here at The Fourth Official. We really appreciate it. Um, but secondly, um, you've sent over a commentary chart um, which is an absolutely fantastic uh, piece of work for somebody like me who's a total geek for uh, football memorabilia. But tell me about this, uh, this new setup you've got going with the commentary charts. For every game that I've ever uh, called, either radio or television, I produce prep notes. And um, you'll find the same with every commentator. Um, they're all done in our own style. Mm -hmm. um, they are a matter of habit. Um, my notes are not dissimilar to the first ones that I ever compiled as a local radio commentator in the um, in the late 1970s. Um, you developed them, but um, why do I still write them out when I am computer literate? Because I've always written them out, and that's kind of how the information uh, goes into my head. I think there's a psychological side to them as well as uh, a factual um, research side to them in so much that, um, that they're very neat and ordered and so they they do provide quite a, um, an eye-catching memento of a football match and similarly when my eyes go down to them um, just before um, a presenter hands to me mm -hmm. what they say to me is well at least you've done your work you know at least the however long they've taken to prepare um, at least you you put the hours in to be as ready for this game as you can possibly be. So they're a bit of a psychological prop, a bit of a comfort blanket. I think a comfort blanket rather than a safety net. I think if you use more than 10% of the information that you've researched, then you're probably in danger of uh, boring the viewer mm -hmm. or the listener. The, the secret really is not actually the, the hours that you spend on websites trawling around the internet for the information. It's the editorializing, it's the journalism, if you like, in how and when you use the information um, in order to amplify and, uh, and, and enlighten um, the, uh, you know, the consumer, the viewer or the, uh, the listener. But they, they are neat and they are, um, as I say, quite striking. And so as a memento of a particular football match, that may mean a great deal to you. Um, they are nice to frame and hang. They're an unusual memento in so much they don't actually tell you the story of what happened. They are a screenshot of kickoff. They yeah. are the, the team lineups and the information that was relevant prior to the game. And so however you watch that game, whether you're in the stadium or whether you were at home on TV or in, you know down a pub with 50 friends, uh, whoever you were with, whatever the circumstances were of your life, um, it's rather like, um, you know, the number one chart song when you've got married or whatever. It it, it kind of brings back the memories and you add the memories to, to the night yourself. So you look at the chart as it was at kickoff with the team lineups and all the information mm -hmm. and then you add your own memories. The, the, the commentary chart doesn't actually tell you or anybody you show it to what happened that night. You tell your own story around um around this sort of starting point um, yeah. so yeah it's it's an unusual memento in that sense 
it's, it's really nice and, and you're right so, so the one that you've sent over uh, to me is from the Champions League final of 2005 which if anyone needs reminding was AC Milan against Liverpool and the, the first thing I said to you just before we spoke about this was you, you look at it and you think about the game from minute zero and f- for me I look at it and think how on earth does that Liverpool team beat that AC Milan team? <laughs> yeah and Vladimir Smitser is just a name in the, uh, among the substitutes um, on the chart you know, just as Sheringham and Solskjaer were just names among the substitutes for the chart for the 99 final. So the, the fact that he came on in, during the first half and scored a really critical goal during that magical six minutes that Liverpool uh, turned the game around is not recorded. Um, you have to add that that memory wherever you particularly watch the game um, of Smeetser. I don't even recall when Harry Kuehl, surprise, surprise, limped off injured. Yeah. Smeetser didn't even have his boots on. There was a, a, a delay amid the many, well, certainly several embarrassments that came <laughs> Liverpool's way during the first half as they couldn't even make the substitution properly. Um, mm. And uh, I'm sure Smitsa came on to sort of waving fists from Liverpool fans watching from wherever they were. You know, you could at least have had your boots on. Yeah, it's a Champions League uh, final. They were talking a little differently uh, 40 minutes later when he... Um, <laughs> when he scored the second goal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's excellent. Thanks again for sending it over. And um, and if, if people want to, to take a look themselves, I'll certainly share a picture. But where can, where can they get these, Clive? We have a, a website which uh, lists all the charts that are available, which is www.commentarycharts.com. If you, go, if you put commentary charts into your search engine, you'll probably that's probably the first thing uh, that you'll find. And you can order them uh, rolled or framed, A4, or A3, and you can even make suggestions for uh, charts that we uh, should be producing for your favourite club or team um, in the future. It's, it's probably an ignorance on my part, and I don't know if it's this, the same for other people, but you, you perhaps don't realise the amount of work that goes into preparing to commentate on a game of football. And you, you'll probably have uh, an abundance of information ready, and actually an hour before kickoff or an hour and 15 minutes before kickoff, that's when you receive the team line. So then presumably the abundance of information that you have sitting separately then needs to be pulled into this format for the commentary chart. So the commentary chart itself probably doesn't even show the amount of work that goes into preparing the commentary chart, if you know what I mean. Is that is that right? You're absolutely right. The hour prior to kickoff is, if you like, the most pressured hour mm-hmm. because all kinds of additional information um, a narrative is sort of thrown in, uh, thrown into the story during that hour leading up to kick off weather conditions, whatever it may be. Uh, so you try in the two days beforehand to take as much pressure off that last hour as you possibly can, so that um, you, uh, yeah, you, you get into a routine and you, you're reasonably calm and assured by the time um, the red light goes on. It's strange we are creatures of habit, uh, commentators and. Very occasionally, um, you know, I might I, I tend to arrive at a stadium four or five hours before kickoff. Um, you know, that's part of your preparation, uh, the build-up really again, just to 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 take as 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 much of the stress out of the job as you possibly can. And occasionally, uh, the editor of a program may say, "We want you to interview the manager uh, half an hour before the game. Is that okay?" And you go, "No, no, no, no. I've been planning that for three days." And of course, the answer is yes. Of course, I'll do it. But it, it, it's anything that breaks the routine and kind of the ordered way that you—it's it, almost like coming in to 
to, to not that I, I I will ever be proficient enough to land a jet aircraft, but it's almost like coming in and 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 on your approach, um, you know, the control tower tells you to to, to pull up and, and take another circuit. It it anything that breaks the routine that you've been planning for hours and days beforehand comes as a bit of a shock to the uh, to the system of a, of the ordered life of um, an anorak commentator. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. No, they, these are fantastic, though. So, commentarycharts.com. If you're uh, if you're as into football memorabilia as, as I am, then definitely take a look. A, a lot of teams covered there as well, Clive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there um, are charts there for you know probably eight or ten uh, English clubs, uh, Rangers, Celtic, England. One thing that probably has become apparent to me. Um, during the last few months of, of since we launched commentary charts is that commercially Manchester United and Liverpool are a country mile ahead of the rest of UK football in terms of demand for, for the product, if you like. And I think that's reflected in other areas in terms of merchandise and so on. You know, I think anybody in, in that field would tell you the same, um, but it just give you, um, a little insight into, um, you know, football fans kind of reel against any mention of franchises and brands and stuff, you know, this sort of American sporting terminology. Mm-hmm. But that's what they are. You know, that's what these huge public limited companies or privately owned, you know, multi-billionaire owned companies are. They are um, essentially big businesses. Yeah. And um you know, that's reflected in their ability to compete in the transfer market ultimately. And so it's reflected on the field. It's very difficult to overturn the established order um, of football unless you're a Paris Saint-Germain and you just suddenly come in with billions of your own. But mm-hmm. um, the, the the source of that, the, the commercial appeal of Manchester United and Liverpool, they are first and second in the UK and third is nowhere really. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's take things right back to the very beginning. You mentioned the late 70s when you were getting started out. So uh, what I'm interested in, how, how does one identify that they want to become uh, a sports commentator? And then how do they actually begin to pursue that as a career? Well, the first thing to say is that you do it differently today than you did in the late 15th century or whenever it was. I first uh, <laughs> harboured the ambitions. Um, the, the nature of media and the consumption of media is changing by the day. And the pathway into media, if that is um, if that is a career ambition of yours, is is regularly changing. Um, I always wanted to be a football commentator. Mm-hmm. I was never going to be an England international uh, striker, um, and so I was realistic enough, I think, during my school career, much as I enjoyed my school sport, mm-hmm. um, to know that that was never an avenue for me. Um, I had a pretty good education, so I, I, you know, I got all the the exam results that enabled me to qualify for um, a university place. And if there had been um, a, a further education opportunity to to pursue that those media ambitions that I had at that time, then I probably would have managed to convince my parents to do that. But I think there were three or four media courses in the entire. Uh, UK university and polytechnic system then and I I didn't get an offer from any of those so I actually took industrial economics and politics at the University of Nottingham my dad was in a kind of a, a, a if you like a small time businessman um, 
and uh, you know, he he saw the value of maybe a career in accountancy or marketing or something. Yeah. Um, for his son at the end of this uh, fine education that he had, and we kind of struck a deal um, whereby I pursued my um, the ambitions of my heart, uh, but acknowledged that if it didn't work out, um, I would follow my head. And um, yeah, you could have been talking to your um, your chartered accountant by now if that's, <laughs> uh, if that's what had happened. But um, within um, about uh, I, 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 the first break is always the biggest. And um, I happened to be graduating in Nottingham at the time when the commercial radio station there was um, literally setting up. So they were in hiring an entire uh, staff, including um, three T-boys or T-boys, tea, tea T-girls, tea mm -hmm. uh, just to you know, learn the ropes. I think we were called broadcast assistants. Um, we did a little bit of everything to begin with. I talked my way into one of those jobs even before I took my finals at, um, at Union and went from there. I had a late night rock show for two, two three months, um, but I was always volunteering for sports jobs. That's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, within a couple of months, they, um, the, uh, the uh, sports staff um, was increased from one to two. And I came in as the, uh, as the sort of junior reporter, started to cover Nottingham Forest uh, home and away fairly regularly. They were a, a kind of mid-table championship club then. My dad um, was uh, meeting Brian Clough two, three months later. And uh, that's when he probably decided that his son had made a good career choice. <laughs> and, and at that point, if someone had taken you aside and said, you will become a commentator who will cover multiple Champions League finals, World Cups, uh, you know, everything that you can cover in the game, what, what would you have thought then? Well, I, it was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, uh, you know, when, when you're fortunate enough to pursue um, uh, a, a career which, as I say, is resonating with your heart rather than your head. Then you've got to have, you've got to have ambition. I think if um, if you want to uh, pursue a career in broadcasting, which is essentially public speaking, you've got to have a bit of self confidence, um, nay vanity. As <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I, as I sort of progressed, I was continually backing myself mm -hmm. to move to the next step from a small local radio station to a large local radio station. I wanted to work for national radio. That didn't happen, but I managed to get into regional television and, and, and on from there. So while the, the nature of the beast and particularly in the 21st century in the Twitter age means that you will never be complacent um, about any kind of progress or opportunity that you get. Um, yeah. I think once you you've, um, you've called uh, a, a live game, then you believe you can call a larger live game. You can believe once you've called a quarterfinal, you believe you can call the semifinal and then a final and so on. So I, I'm not, I, I'd be absolutely lying if I say that this is a shock because mm -hmm. this is where I, this was the mountain I was trying to climb. Yeah. You know, this was the summit that I was trying to scale. So um, I've, I've been very lucky along the way. I had good breaks along the way, but um as I say, I can't put shelves up. I don't know what I would have done if um, if I hadn't been able to pursue this particular career. So I can't look back from if if I'm anywhere near the summit. I can't look back down now um, and pretend that um, it, it it wasn't my intention to try to get here. You could compare it to a, a young footballer setting out. They all set their sights at 
well, most of them set their sights at playing in the Premier League, but they want to be competing in the Champions League. They want to be, you know, uh, at the World Cup if they can. And I guess it's it's similar to that in a sense, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, you know part of part of the uh, pro- progression that you make is by listening to other people, particularly mm-hmm. people that you admire. You admire their work, and not always in football. In um, you know, if, if I was pressed to name my favourite commentator, he, he would be an NFL commentator. Sadly, not with us anymore, Pat Summerall. Um, my great mentor in broadcasting was a boxing commentator. Again, sadly, not with us anymore, mm-hmm. uh, Reg Guttridge. He taught me more about the job um, than anybody else. But each time you are listening to somebody who is in advance of you on the career ladder, you are quietly thinking to yourself, you've got to be, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, um, not many of your uh, um, uh, listeners will be of an age to remember a wonderful drama from uh, from the dark and distant past on British television called Boys from the Black Stuff, written by the marvellous Alan Bleasdale. But he had a character in that, Yossi Hughes, who was out of work and used to go around basically looking at other people working and saying, I can do that, gives a job. That was his, you know, that was, you know, I can do that, gives, gives, gives that job. And, and in a way, you know, progressing in broadcasting is a little bit like that. Um, you, I, I, Brian Moore was the, the man that I succeeded at, at ITV in mm-hmm. 1998. He, he retired after the World Cup final. Another truly great broadcaster who sadly is um, no longer with us. And um, I remember during that World Cup, um thinking i did i um was given one of the quarterfinals that the it itv had two quarterfinals uh obviously knew that brian was going to do the final and the fight the tournament was going pretty well for me and um i did kind of harbor an ambition that maybe they would give me the semi mm-hmm. in, in acknowledgement that brian would then have a full week to get ready for his swan song and i know in my mind that i felt well, I know in my mind, I felt I was better than him, that I was, I, I, you know, that I was sharper, faster, more in touch with the modern game um, and that I could do the semi-final. And I know how disappointed I was when they awarded that semi-final to him. But I look back now and think, what an idiot I was. <laughs> I mean, I was nowhere near as good a broadcaster as he was because it's probably only with the passage of time that I've realized the connection that he had with the British public, the warmth that he had, the trust that they put in him was something which you can't, you can't evaluate in how quickly you, you shout a goal scorer's name out or, or how correctly you get a, a player's pronunciation, which was kind of how I was judging myself and him okay. at the time. But with, with the benefit of experience and, and a kind of wider view of what we are, communicators, people trying to connect with millions and millions of people of all different ages, genders, backgrounds, ethnicity, you know, sexual orientation. I mean, when you when you commentate to an audience of 28 million, as I did at the World Cup semi-final two years ago, mm. you commentate with everybody, really. And it is impossible to please everybody, to, to provide a commentary which is what everybody wants because everybody kind of wants something a little bit different. But Brian Moore came pretty close to that. And that, you know, that is the measure of great communicators. And it's given me a kind of an outlook on the whole idea of broadcasting, 
which is probably a little bit skewed compared to a lot of people, but I will always try to promote it because, you know, when you are trying to relate to so many people are so different, um, I mentioned Brian's warmth. Warmth is probably the greatest quality that you can exude, particularly as a television broadcaster. And so therefore, I would argue that the greatest broadcasters in, in, in our life at the moment are people like Dermot O'Leary, Bradley Walsh, Declan Donnelly, who can cover all of those ages, who, mm. who are the kind of guys, okay, it's, you know, it's reality TV, it's, it's light entertainment, it's mid-evening Saturday, you know, have a bit of a laugh. But actually, if you ask yourself, if you're not too snobbish to admit it, they're the kind of guys you feel as if you quite like to have a pint with. You feel as yeah. if you'd like them. And I, I know all three of them, and you would like them. They are exactly that guy. And, you know, the, the ability to look down that little black hole at the end of the camera and actually feel as if this guy's talking to you and doing it sincerely and earnestly and with a little bit of a, a mischievous smile or a, but capable of delivering a serious line of responding to a situation on their feet live to millions. Mm -hmm. I tell you, <laughs> um, you know, you've got to go up to the top of that mountain and look down before before you judge anybody who's been there. And um, those guys are are the masters of, of my profession. And uh, I learn from them as much as I learn from, I don't know, you know, Martin Tyler or Nasser Hussain or whoever you think is a great sports broadcaster. That's uh, so interesting. Um, and it is one of the things that I wanted to sort of discuss with you a little bit was dealing with perhaps what I would see as that frustration of everyone having a view on how you do your job. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the things I, I was going to ask about was, um, you know, the ability to maintain impartiality. Is that, is that something that's tricky? And I'm not necessarily talking about you might have grown up supporting a football club and then you have to commentate on that club. It's just naturally when you're watching a game of football, players or teams certainly when I'm watching it on, on, on the TV, players or teams can get on my nerves in the way that they're approaching the game. And it's, is it difficult to not let that emotion get into you when you're, when you're commentating and remember that there are all sorts of different people who probably support both of these clubs watching this game? Well, you do have to remember those people. And, um, you know, one of the first things that uh, I, I mentioned Reg Guttridge, my mentor taught me was to identify your audience. And, you know, Reg, was of the mind that you, it's almost a different job if you are commentating to 20 million plus on an England game at a major World Cup tournament mm -hmm. uh, than if you're commentating on a Europa League game with a 5.30 kickoff between two mainland European teams, which is being watched by maybe, I don't know, 100,000 viewers. So even there you've got a hardcore audience. Maybe they've got a, some kind of commitment um, to, to one of those teams, or maybe they just love their football or they've got nothing better to do. But you are, you are, you're, you're commenting to people who probably subscribed, you know, some kind of subscription channel, either that or they've found some kind of pirate, pirate channel, you know, <laughs> they're taking some kind of commitment to, to, to watch this game. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, I mean, Reg used to say to me that, you know, when the audience is 20 million plus, there is an argument for explaining the offside law at some stage during that broadcast because you don't want to be talking over the heads of anybody. You used to have the analogy of um, that mathematics class that we all sat in at school where you get 
30 minutes in, you're sitting on the back row and you haven't understood a, da a damn word of it, but you're too frightened to put your hand up and ask. Mm -hmm. So it, you, you have to, I, I mean, I think they're really, really good lessons in all kinds of communication, whether you're standing up in front of a business meeting or you're a teacher or whatever, you, you, you have to recognize who your audience is first and foremost and, and broadcast to them. And actually, you know, what you say about hiding your, uh, affections it, it's actually it's recognizing the audience's affections and if it is an england game in a major tournament okay we're a very diverse nation i can tell by your accent that you might not be an england fan you <laughs> might be an anybody but england fan so uh and and by the way i've done some work in scotland my wife's scottish so i've done some work in scotland in the last few months where it has been remarked that you're the guy who gets excited when England scored. Yeah, okay, mm. I'm sorry. But 99% <laughs> of the, well, certainly 95% of the audience, you know, even in this diverse nation where there could be hundreds of thousands of Poles watching and England may be playing against Poland. But come on, the bottom line is mm -hmm. that 90 odd percent are not only English, but are desperate for England to do well. You know, that that kind of cabin fever that we all we all get yeah. during the course of a major tour. And you've got to recognize that. And that doesn't mean that you stop being objective, that you don't call a bad England pass a bad England pass, but it does and it, it doesn't mean that you become a cheerleader or a tub thumper who who starts, you know, plastering tabloid headlines all over your commentary. But when England score in the opening minutes of a World Cup semi-final, as they did you're entitled to get a little bit more excited than you did in the quarterfinal between whoever, Germany and Croatia, or whatever game you called. It is a national event. We are now talking um, something which is like an X-Factor final or a Strictly final or a Royal Wedding or something. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's now no longer a football match. And as the broadcaster, as the commentator, you've got to go with that. You've got to ride that 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 particular roller coaster and you've got to hang on with it and try to try to remain credible as i say try to remain um objective but you've got to you've got to go with the excitement level that the game is is generating for your audience so i mean it it becomes difficult who do i support i support my mates um i am fortunate to have a lot of friends who are still active mm -hmm. in the football industry and mainly now of the manager generation rather than the player generation obviously but um for instance uh, i mean gareth southgate was at our wedding you know so of, of course i want him to do well i know yeah. ali i know the kids i know yeah you know he's a he's a pal of mine played golf with him and stuff so mm -hmm. and and roy hudson is a really good friend too and again my wife and Roy and Sheila, we've been out for dinner together and talked about anything other than football for a night. <laughs> so when I am calling England versus Iceland and England are losing 2-1 and there is two minutes to go and England are playing like Iceland B, basically, despite mm -hmm. all the names that are on the field, I have got to say, part of my job is to say that unless England can find an equaliser, Roy Hodgson's position as manager is untenable and he will have to go. Mm. You know, that is kind of part of my journalistic call on the night. Um, <laughs> he's a mate of mine. Yeah, um, now, fortunately, Roy, Roy knew that better than I did and, and, and pretty much resigned as the, before the referee had finished blowing the final whistle. He was bright enough and intelligent enough and smart enough to know that. So I'm not 
I'm not outing him. I'm not, I'm not sacking him, mm. but it is a tough call. And they're, they are your involvements. And it's still a big call to make to a lot of people, to 20 odd million people, um, you know, to d dismiss somebody's career, somebody um, as experienced and as good at what he does as Roy is. Um, so yeah, they're the, they are the difficult calls that you've got to make. And that's where your journalism, your editorializing comes in. Absolutely. So a few questions, uh, Clive, that you probably get all the time, but I'm going to ask them anyway, um, but you can do them relatively quick fire if you'd like to. Um, <laughs> I want to know um, throughout your you know, many, many years of experience, there must be that one game that really just stands out in the memory as, you know, that's, that's the game, that's the biggest, the biggest and best game I've ever been at. I am a great believer that football belongs in its moment. Part of the reason that this job is a dream job is what those moments mean to people for the rest of their lives with the, those where were you you know when gerard scored where were you um you know when rooney scored that that the youngest premier league um goal scorer um, where were you obviously when Ali solskjaer scored the winner now i commentated on all of those moments on Kieran Trippier's free kick uh, at the start of the World Cup semi-final and so that's a fantastic privilege there's a certain amount of challenge and responsibility that goes with trying to provide some words for that moment mm. that people will associate with that moment for years to come and sometimes you can try too hard on that sometimes the words that come naturally into your head are the best words um, but in terms of the biggest moment in my career I've mentioned that Brian Moore retired after the 98 World Cup final. So 98-99 was my first season as the senior lead commentator for a network television uh, channel for ITV. Uh, the final match of that season was the final match of Manchester United's treble bid um, that year. And there were, I think, 23 million people watching when uh, Teddy and Ollie scored their goals that night. Um, if I'd shouted out the wrong name for either of them, we wouldn't be having this conversation yeah. now. Um, they would have, you know, they'd have decided this is too big a job for a rookie. Um, so those two or three minutes um, where I did get their names right and said one or two things which have become, you know, part of people's recollections um, of of that uh, climax to that final. You know, they they were. Um, they were the most important minutes of of my career they they bought me some breathing space for any mistakes that i might have made in subsequent years um and um they also gave me the confidence to feel that i could handle moments like that if um, if they came along again so even though it was a pretty crap match <laughs> mm, yeah. and even though it was a pretty crap story until um uh, until the last 5 minutes it was an extraordinary closing 10 minutes because Bayern hit the woodwork twice um, and of course Michael came forward and Mateus went off and all the things that happened you know, Ollie came on and um, yeah I mean it it was you can only you, you, you dream about having material like that to work with in any kind of entertainment um, branch and um, you know all I had to do just to to repeat the um the roller coaster analogy was just hang on try and keep my eyes open and um and 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 use the i mean the best two moments of commentary that night were the pauses after the two goals and um 
Uh, I think they're about seven or eight seconds each. I actually had to put my hand across Big Ron after the first of them because he had his microphone in his hand and was ready to go with something. Um, those moments deserve something better than, oh, amazing, incredible, unbelievable. They deserve something better than that. Yeah. So you, you've got to come, and again, an, another Reg Guttridge um, uh, piece of advice that silences from television football commentators, yes, they are golden, and, and yes, we do speak too much, um, but they're not rests. They are thinking time. They are time that, that is handed to you because the pictures are telling the story um, for you to decide what it is that you're going to say next, which will capture that moment. And um, yeah, somewhere in the back of uh, this thick uh, brain of mine, uh, Reg was yelling at me and during those moments, you know, come up with something. And um, yeah, they were the, um, you know, they were the, if you like, the best lines that I came out with that night after those eight, nine seconds of thinking time. Unbelievable. And I guess sometimes it is just about letting the atmosphere in the stadium sort of fill that gap as well, because you you only get that sound for a matter of seconds, don't you? And, and sometimes you just got to let people hear it. Yeah, I think, I mean, um, I, I've actually um, written a book in the last uh, couple of months, which uh, which will be released in the spring. And, and some of it is about kind of broadcast techniques. A lot of it is about the, the, the truly great people that I've been fortunate enough to work with and around the Cloughs and the Shankleys and the Fergusons and the Dalgleishes and the, and the Southgates and so on. So, um, but, I, you know, I think you, you, you can, uh, you, you, you can form ideas as to what good commentary is, but ultimately, as Barry Davis once said to me, one man's commentary is another man's pain in the ass. We, we are a, a matter of opinion. Mm. And I actually write in the book, there's a chapter on co-commentary and you may remember um funny enough you talk about liverpool in 2004-05 and stephen gerrard of course scored the goal against olympiakos which took liverpool into the knockout uh, stages of uh, of the champions league uh, that season and made istanbul uh, a possibility and actually the goal is called by martin tyler and then andy gray is all over it straight mm -hmm. away you know if martin did try to put a hand across andy he didn't put it across strongly enough <laughs> because um andy came out with it wasn't you was it you beauty or something like that i think it was and, yeah and that kind of breaks all the rules really because it's not his job to come in yet he's supposed to wait for the replay but in the book i write um there are only two rules for the co-commentator one is that the co-commentator must wait for the replay and rule two is he can he or she can ignore rule one at any time. And that <laughs> so there are no rules. Um, you don't want to be doing that every game, Andy. And Andy, you know, is professional enough to know that. But sometimes that that's the magic that the, the, the you know, just the reaction. And sometimes as long as it isn't just, oh, it's amazing. Say you've got to do better than that. But actually, you beauty is as, as much a part of the the history of that goal as you know some people some people on the pitch they think it's all over was part of the the 66 sometimes you just get it right and yeah. um, there are no rules for getting it right
Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, if you if you use that kind of tactic in, in Andy Gray's moment there, if he, if he does it as sparingly as, as I'm assuming he, he does, it becomes even more impactful for those kind of moments like, um, you know, the 90th minute winner from Steven Gerrard. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so the, the flip side to that, then, you talked about some great moments there that you've you've commented on. Are there any games that you remember being particularly excited about, ready for, did a lot of research for and thought this was going to be a cracker and it just turned out to be a complete disappointment and, and was that game hard to then commentate on and keep energy levels high and, and sort of maintain the excitement for? Well, probably the same game for the first 80 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, um, uh, and I've already mentioned England-Iceland, um, mm. which was difficult on all levels really. Um, because I did know Roy, not only Roy, but Ray Lewington, his assistant, Gary Neville was his assistant, who is a really good friend. And I knew how much work they had put in, in into it. I even knew how much work they'd done on defending Iceland throw-ins. And the first Iceland throw-in resulted in an Iceland goal. So, you know, sometimes you can almost get too much information, too much insight when you're lucky enough to have contacts who will take you into their confidence and not only give you their team lineup the day before the game so you can research properly, um, but will actually give you some some backstory as to what they've been preparing, what they think of the opponents, you know, the things that diplomacy would um, prevent them ever from actually saying publicly, they've whispered in your ear. So you've got a fantastic overview of the game coming into it. Um, and of course, the game doesn't turn out the way that they or you um, wanted it to. But I remember um, that there was, uh, in many ways, my uh, ambition to, to, to be a commentator, I'm sure was galvanized by um, the great radio commentators of, of my childhood. Um, and one of them who had a voice to absolutely die for was the late Peter Jones. And um, I mean, you know, if anybody has aspirations in, in this field, then go to your favourite search engine and, and find the radio, BBC radio commentator, Peter Jones, just listen to the voice. Similarly, go and find Pat Summerall and listen to the voice. You know, these my, my sort of TV broadcasting hero, Pat Summerall. Um, but somebody was said to me, ah, oh, Peter Jones, he's, he's brilliant. He can make a bad game sound good. Mm. And I, <laughs> you get a sense of humour failure when you're a commentator and a non-commentator starts talking about, I said, no, he would never do that. And they said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? I said, well, Peter is better than that. But, you know, Pete, Peter can make a great game sound like truly great. Um, he can make a good game sound maybe great, but he would never, he would never try to make a bad game sound anything other than what it was, because mm. that's the editorial judgment of a good a broadcast journalist so um it it is it, you've got to you've got to reflect the game and and reflect people's reaction to the game and their mood to the game and during that england iceland game there was disappointment there which turns inevitably into cynicism which turns into anger and you you know you've got to find the words for that and um and so that's just serving your audience and 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 meeting the moment which are the recurring messages which i'm so Sadly, you'll hear it over and over again, but they are the important messages in communication. And it's the same skill that the great news reporters have, or, you know, even the, I've talked about the great light entertainment presenters of today. It is exactly the same skill. It is using the platform, which you always dreamt to have, to connect with people. And who are those people? The important people, 
your audience, who that audience is on the particular day or night. And so if a, if a, poor, if a game is absolutely getting under the skin of the nation, then you've got to go there too. Right. I'm going to ask you this one as well. You've been to so, so many games over the years. I, I want you to pick out a footballer, someone who you've enjoyed watching most and enjoyed commentating on most. Um, my son, when he was eight, um, was the player that I watched most avidly from the touchline of his Sunday um, morning boys team, um, which is a silly answer, but actually... It, it, that's that's the attachment that we get to football people. Obviously, I love my son and mm. I knew my son, but we build up relationships through football with people that we will never meet, but they become heroes. You know, Dennis Law was my hero. And um, funny enough, the first sort of uh, chapter of the book is all about heroes and, and, and the relationship that that you build from afar with your heroes, the sort of magical, mystical relationship that you have with them um if i was really pushed to say the football i've most enjoyed watching and commentating on uh in in my career so far um it would be somebody who scored probably the best champions league final goal i've ever seen in the city of glasgow which is a bit of a clue yep um, and somebody whose most famous act on a football field i had one of the very best seats in the house to see in the very biggest match that you can play in, and I didn't see him do it. So now we know we're talking about Zinedine Zidane, mm. who scored that incredible left foot, left foot from a pretty incredible Roberto Carlos cross, by the way, against Bayer Leverkusen uh, at Hamden. Um, Zidane just, he wasn't quick, you know? I, I mean, you see, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo is an extraordinary athlete. Um, it, it, he you feel as if he would excel in whichever sport he put his mind to a because of his athleticism b because of his attitude and we've been very very lucky to have been alive in the ronaldo messi era mm. and then again Lionel messi a totally different kind of footballer but he has that kind of quickness he's not a sprinter but he's got the quickness to get away from people to go past people to beat three or four people in the space of five meters Zidane didn't have any of that he didn't he he was a bit of a plodder really when you watched him run he wasn't he might have a little roll under the foot and go past somebody with a with a drop of the shoulder but they would catch up with him in the next four or five meters so Zidane had vision he just saw the whole field it's like somebody had given him a script beforehand uh, and then he kind of knew what was going to happen and could therefore influence the game in that way and um so he was very very special to me and as i say it's ironic that i was commentating on that world cup final in berlin and um i suddenly noticed that he was uh, walking and that the referee was waving a red card and i had no idea what had happened i hadn't got a clue what my hero had done to <laughs> mark the end of his career and that was it he walked off the field and never came back and um, it wasn't until the replay popped up 20, 30 seconds that at least uh, at least he went with a flourish. And at least he took Marco Matarazzi with him. <laughs> Memorable way to go, wasn't it? No, you're, you're, completely, <laughs> you're completely right. And you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I'm a massive, massive Zidane fan. And I think um, <laughs> one, of the things, um, one of the things for me, as you, uh, as you explained, is he was by no means unfit. But he wasn't, like you said, he wasn't a sprinter. He's, he wasn't, um, 
he wasn't an athlete really in the sense that a lot of modern day footballers are, but he just had that ability to just breeze past people. And like you said, if they caught up with him four or five yards later, he would just do it again. And it was just unbelievable to watch. And um, when I think back to individual performances, um, for me, one of the ones that, that always uh, stands out is, is by him in the World Cup you were just talking about. Uh, I think he almost single-handedly put Brazil out of that tournament. Yeah. Um, and it was just a, a remarkable um, remarkable performance all around. So, uh, so yeah, a great shout there. A great shout. He, 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 he also stuffed me. One of the uh, people say the most embarrassing moments of your career. And I hate that question because, you know, we're, try, we're not trying to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We're trying to avoid mistakes. So please don't highlight our mistakes. <laughs> but um, in the 2004 European Championship finals, um, the Times newspaper, um, I, I mean, things like Big Brother were absolutely massive at the time. That kind of reality TV, voting people in and out, which is still pretty big, but it was even bigger then. And the Times newspaper um, actually listed all the commentators and pundits who were going to, uh, people were going to be listening to for the next three weeks on BBC and ITV. Um, and the readers voted one out every day and this competition began on the second night of the tournament and on the second night of the tournament um, ITV had France versus England live um, which was just a massive way to launch uh, our tournament and England took the lead in the game Uh, David Beckham missed a penalty in the game to make it 2-0 and with about a minute and a half to go I said something to the effect, this will be a wonderful boost for England uh, heading into the rest of the tournament if they can just see it through. And I know I definitely said if they can just see it through. Mm. Well, of course, in the next two minutes, my man, my hero, uh, (laughs) scored twice. He scored twice and England lost the game. Mm -hmm. And it was my fault. Uh, The nation blamed me. And uh, I was the first to be voted out in that particular Times competition. (laughs) So thanks. Thanks, (laughs) ZZ. The famous commentator's curse, isn't it? <laughs> um, so something else I wanted to ask you about, Clive. Um, just when it comes to those big gigs that you've talked about, Champions League finals, World Cup finals and um, things like that, is there a sort of friendly rivalry between commentators? Yeah, um, I think it's um, it's a little bit of... Uh, I, I don't know what... Um, I, I don't know whether gladiators used to get on with each other um, uh, because, uh, you know, you, you knew that you were going into the arena and only one of you was coming out. Mm-hmm. So you had a kind of a bit of a kinship, I guess, with the other gladiators once upon a time. And particularly in the Twitter age, I think we all kind of look out for each other. Uh, and if anybody takes it in the neck um, from the uh, social media trolls, then we all feel it a little bit. And we're the first to, you know, to, to message that that man or woman and say, hey, never mind, it's, you know, it's kind of part of the it's kind of part of the business. So we're competitive. We want each other's jobs. Um, we probably bitch about each other quietly under our hands. Uh, mm-hmm. Every football conversation these days, as you know, is held behind the hand so that yes. nobody can see what you're saying. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a competitive area, but I think we understand each other. And we understand. I, I don't like the word pressure, but the you know the challenges of the job. And um, uh, I. I couldn't say that I, I I tend to avoid the kind of social company of other commentators because we finish up talking about commentary and I kind of like to escape all of that, um, you know, when I'm not actually working. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I've got all their numbers. Um, they're all friends and acquaintances. And um, as I say, I, I 
watch and listen to their material sympathetically. Yeah, good. And I guess other good commentators existing is something that helps to, to drive each of you on. So that's not a bad thing either, is it? <laughs> well, we're all the matter of opinion, of course. <laughs> um, so, so football has obviously had to quite rapidly evolve in recent months um, with coronavirus taking hold. Um, fans obviously being kept out of uh, grounds. That means that football clubs are, are beefing up what they're uh, offering their fans in terms of online streaming services and other things like that. Um, so you've recently taken on a role with Rangers TV. How did, uh, how did that come about? They asked me. Um... I, I'm, I'm not sure why. I, I know that uh, Rangers were particularly keen to recognise the support of their season ticket holders. Um, I mean, just from an economic point of view, I think clubs like Rangers and Celtic are uh, more reliant on turnstile money than the, obviously the big clubs south of the border uh, are in terms of the t- TV revenue and commercial revenue. Um you know, the fans are more important to Rangers and Celtic than they are to Liverpool and Manchester United. The, the paying fans, the, the paying customers at Celtic Park and Ibrox um, are the lifeblood of the club, um, both in terms of the spirit and in terms of the economics. So the fact that um, uh, Rangers fans couldn't get to the games, and I've seen the queues um, just for kit, just for the new kit, yeah. uh, when I've been to Ibrox on a couple of occasions to call the games. So I'm aware of of the passion of, of uh, Glaswegians for their favourite football teams. Uh, funny enough, during the Graham Sooners era, uh, quite a number of my best friends in football uh, came to play for Rangers. So I actually came up to watch them. I saw a couple of old firm games uh, back in the day. And equally, you know, Martin O'Neill was my very first and one of my closest friends in football. Mick McCarthy's a close friend. Roy Keane's a close friend. Uh, Neil Lennon's a, a friend. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, I often um, routinely say best atmosphere in a football ground, either Parkhead or Anfield on a European night. So I've got, <laughs> believe it or not, if it's possible to have an equal affection for both clubs, mm-hmm. um, I, I pretty much got it. Maybe not quite so much at this moment in time as a, an employee of Rangers uh, television, but I've said this and nobody in Glasgow believes me, but if Celtic TV had have asked me, I'd have said yes to them. It, it's just an opportunity at a time in my career when I am a freelance and um, we can come up north and, and see my wife's family and, uh, and, and staff, play a bit of golf on our favourite golf courses up there and, and do, the, you know, do the, the job. And um, to a very committed um, television production where they are using the likes of Graham Souness and Walter Smith, um, regularly Neil McCann, Alex Ray are both uh, excellent. I've got Kevin Thompson alongside me. I mean, they, you know, they're using good people mm-hmm. uh, and putting on um, uh, a production that would, um, you know, wouldn't be out of place on Sky Sports or BT Sports. So um, it's just, um, yeah, it's just a good gig for me. Um, and um, I, I do know Stephen pretty well. I know Gary McAllister and Andy Scolding pretty well at Rangers too. So yeah, I've got a certain involvement at the moment, but then, you know, my audience have got a total involvement. What's this all about? It's about serving your audience. And Mm -hmm. when you're broadcasting pretty much exclusively to Rangers season ticket holders and Rangers TV subscribers, um, do you want Rangers to play well and win? (laughs) Uh, Yes, makes the job easier. 
Um, if Rangers play badly, will you say so? Yeah, if that's my opinion, yeah, of course I'll continue to be objective. I haven't commentated an old firm game yet. Um, there is one uh, very early in the new year, which, I, funnily enough, I may miss simply because of other commitments uh, down south. Um, but I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm enjoying that there's, there's been a very warm welcome, inevitably, from a lot of Rangers fans mm -hmm. uh, on social media. Um, I'm aware that that welcome is mirrored um, on the other side of the city where the east side just think I've, I've you know, fallen into the devil's hands. Yeah. I, I'm doing a job. I'm doing the job to my best of my ability. Um, and, um, I mean, I've tried to explain that. Um, there's always a percentage you don't want to listen. Mm -hmm. But um, it's just the way the, uh, of the modern broadcasters world we do all appear now on various channels and this particular channel have asked me to work for them that's that's really interesting i think um i i'm able to step back from it a little bit i'm, I'm actually a hearts fan so there's no allegiance with either glasgow club there so that's it's easier for me to sort of stand back and and look at the situation and and um frankly you'll have found straight away if you if you if you take a job with one or other side of of the old firm um you know that's it as far as everyone's concerned you're a rangers fan or you're a celtic fan and uh, mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure you've had um plenty of opinions expressed on social media because of that but um no that's quite interesting to to hear actually I, I'm, I'm wondering um how have you found it so far commentating at such a such a massive club with an empty stadium um i've i've commentated on a number of english premier league games in june and july in empty stadia and obviously you have to adapt to that um funnily enough i'm not a fan of the of, of the piped crowd effects which are an option for television viewers and an option that they seem to prefer um, the majority of, of viewers, when given the choice of the natural sound in the empty stadium and um, the kind of EA Sports um, FIFA um, crowd effects, go for the for the crowd effect. I don't quite get that. Um, I think it's I, I quite like the the um, the raw, stark um, sound of of coaches and substitutes and the 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 um, sound of applause of hands clapping together echoing around Ibrox or or wherever um, I think you know I I mean the the playing genuine football for genuine Premier League or Premiership points um, they're getting genuinely paid to play why why we have to dress it up and pretend there are people in the stadium I don't quite I don't quite know um, it's funny I've watched quite a few tapes of um, Rangers opponents in order to prepare for the games. And um, when you're watching um, a tape of a match at, uh, I don't know, Killy or um, St. Johnson, it, it seems to be a bit louder. I don't know whether Scottish managers and substitutes <laughs> just make more noise than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. But it, it's almost like there's 10,000 in. It's uh, it's fantastic. And I, I, I say, I kind of wish that that... that you, there's some problem with some of the language. Surprise, mm. surprise. Not <laughs> just in Scotland, by the way. Um, but uh, that I'd, I'd rather have it as it is. And um, I, um, But it, it, I, I, it maybe makes commentary style a bit more conversational, which I don't particularly like. Mm. I think television commentary is becoming too conversational, a bit too what I call sports bar chumminess, you know, nicknames and stories about stuff other than what we're actually watching. 
um, which I think is uh, a distraction and uh, is not serving the audience in the way that we should be serving the audience. But maybe when the stadium is empty, there's maybe more of a feeling that you have to fill more of the gaps and it becomes yeah. a little bit more conversational. But um, uh, I try not to change my style too much, whether I'm working for Rangers TV or I'm working for, you know, CBS on a Champions League game. So, so it won't, it won't be lost on you at all, Clive. That it's a massive season up here. Um, you know <laughs> that we're given given your new role. Hips are going to do it then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, <laughs> personally. <laughs> um, as no, but as someone who's attended more more live Rangers games than most uh, this season, I do have to ask you: How do you rate? How do you rate their chances of stopping uh, Celtic's ten in a row? Well, I, funnily enough, the the one piece of real controversy that I have courted and got uh, was a, a remark that I made towards the end of the game that I I just think that motivation should be a positive thing and th- that, you know, Rangers should be thinking about extending their record of, of the, the most Scottish league titles rather than trying to stop somebody. It, that Ten in a row should be Celtic's motivation, not Rangers' motivation. Um, but that that was kind of my slightly naive take on that. And I did make a couple of remarks that, you know, Rangers weren't even in the league for whatever. And and then that got twisted to saying, are you trying to say that Celtic, you know, there should be an asterisk against those Celtic titles uh, when Rangers were out for four years? No, I never said that. That's not what I said at all. And equally then, I got a lot of Celtic males saying, uh, this is a completely new Rangers company, so therefore they haven't got any league titles. Well, come on. Let's all settle down here and and look at it for what it is. What you've got is a competitive league again, uh, or certainly competitive at the top, Mm -hmm. which is surely what any, you know, if there's such a thing as a neutral, a Hearts fan or whatever, wants um, for that league. If somebody else can get involved, um, like Hibernian (laughs) or, you know, like uh, Alec Ferguson's Aberdeen did all those years ago, uh, then for the good, but at least yeah. Rangers are back in the league and can get involved themselves. And it, I mean, it, it went, it was neck and neck at, at sort of Christmas turn of the year last season. Who knows what happened um, after that? I mean, I, you know, I think you'd have to be a pretty ardent Celtic fan to deny that Rangers maybe had the better of the League Cup final that Fraser Foster played out of his skin. And hey, listen, you're entitled to win a, a Cup final that way. But it was more more evidence that Rangers were getting closer. Um, I think we've seen more evidence again this year, um, this season. Um, the games were one-sided. Um, you, you know, if you do Rangers home games, then we all know the nature of the beast is that they are likely to be attack versus defence long periods and that will be part of the challenge both for Rangers and for Celtic not to drop points in the other games it's easy to conclude that the old firm games will effectively settle the outcome of the premiership but that's not been the evidence of the last two years it's the points that Rangers have dropped to other teams that have effectively settled um, the, the title or given Celtic the breathing space to win by the margins that they have so Rangers have got to address that. You know, they tried to do that with um, some of the attacking players that they bought, who are perhaps the likes of Aribo and Hadji and and maybe Roof um, are, are more adept at finding gaps against tight, packed defences. Morello seems to be back in the frame now. So, 
you know, he's still part of the armory. Uh, it looks as if Kent is going to stay, which means that, you know, they do have some genuine attacking power. They, they were solid defensively most of last season. It looks like they're going to be again uh, this season. But, you know, we've just come off a weekend where they've conceded a couple of goals and been pushed by Hibs. Um, just as a little reminder that, that you know, it is it is possible to, to um, you know, to come up against a, another team that can can challenge you. So, um, it, it, I think it's, I, I'm excited to be involved with the Scottish Premiership this season because my feeling from what I've seen so far is that this will go mo- certainly most, if not all, of the way. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting year ahead, um, and I, I love your take there on Rangers should be motivated by um, their success rather than you know preventing another team's success. I think that's a really well, good way I, of looking I, at yeah, it. Yeah, I try to say that in the most positive way, and mm. I, and actually, um, I was quoted and totally misquoted on mm. uh, on social media. It became totally twisted what I'd said. Um, in, to, to the point where the, the word we appeared three or four times in quotes. I never would ever use the word we mm. during a raid. I'm not an employee of Rangers Football Club. I, I'm a contractor who comes in occasionally and calls a game. Um, if I were a contractor on the new dressing rooms that they've just built at Ibrox, you know, that, I, I mean, that sounds a stupid um, analogy to make, but I, actually it's the same. And, and you know, there would probably have been Celtic fans work. In fact, when I um, came out of Ibrox the last time I was up there um, for the Killy game, I was waiting for a taxi back into the middle of town. And um, uh, the, uh, the the guy who was on the door, um, I said, you know, that, that it was a pretty convincing win in the end. And he said, speak for yourself. He said, we're just about to kick off at Tannadice. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Celtic fan, actually, on the on the game. Well, it definitely sounds like you've entered the uh, the cauldron of Scottish football. It's a pretty uh, unique place, particularly over in Glasgow. So, uh, yeah, an interesting few months ahead for you, I'm sure. What do you reckon the future looks like then, Clive? You've obviously taken up a few few different roles now. Um, you know, no no plans yet to, to hang up the mic then? Absolutely not. No, I'm uh, I'm really enjoying um, the job. I'm enjoying the um, the challenge of the um, ever changing uh, nature of the job. Um, uh, there are more and more broadcast platforms out there. I think um, we're going to see a future where the subscription model, which has been um, established now in UK television since 1992, might start to become diluted um, as people find their content in different ways and from uh, different sources. So, um, you know, I think all of us, whatever... Um, age, whatever our experience, have got to be light on our feet and adapt to that and just continue to remember those principles that I was given right from the start of my career, which I repeat over and over again and have said to you in the course of this podcast to remember what a privilege it is to have the opportunity to commentate on a sport which touches people's lives in, in a way that very little else does, to recognize who your audience is and to serve them uh, and not to to serve yourself and to editorialize you know to to tell the story and hopefully meet the moments when they come and capture them and add to them it, there's no point in having the sound up unless the commentator's adding something so um you know that's our biggest challenge to add to something 
to your the enjoyment you're already having just watching football. Clive, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us here at the fourth official. Um, that was incredibly interesting for me. Um, and listen, all the best with everything that you've got going on. Okay, thank you very much.